we can take we can take that kind of um Hello and welcome to Lecture in Progress. I'm your host, Will Hudson. Lecture in Progress is an educational resource to help the next generation of creatives make better career decisions by inspiring and informing them of the breadth of opportunities that exist in the creative industry. We've launched the first version of the website alongside a Kickstarter campaign to get the project off the ground. There are some great rewards. Please do check them out at lectureinprogress.com. This podcast series includes a number of conversations with creatives about how they got to where they are and how they've come to do what they do from graphic designers and illustrators to photographers and filmmakers. This podcast series includes a number of conversations with creatives about how they got to where they are and how they've come to do what they do. My guest in this episode is experienced designer Nelly Ben-Hayoun, and I started as always by asking them to describe what it is that they do. So I design extreme experiences for members of the public to access the sublime, in a way, in science. So for example, I would design, you know, ways for you to access what a rocket liftoff is like from your living room, while you have dark energy being produced in the kitchen sink and super K sonic boom uh, explosion into your bathroom. So that's basically the sort of, you know, the wonderland in which I live and I want to share with members of the public. And what, what does a good week, a week that you enjoy, what have you done in that week? Ooh, I would have done tons of things. So I think, you know, one of the things that define my practice is what I call the total bombardment. And total bombardment is really having this sort of 360 holistic approach to life, to science, to knowledge itself as well. And so, and the practice just means that I have to be a bit everywhere. So, um, you know, I'm a wired innovation fellow. So I will spend a fair amount of this week together with like tech companies to figure out how they are developing their technology and how they might modify our, you know, every day in the next five, 10 years. I will be with my students. You know, I'm a senior lecturer at Central St. Martins in the MA Material Futures, but also at the RCA in architecture and uh, design product. So, you know, you will see me there, uh, you know, teaching to the students. Uh, I will be, I will be working at WeTransfer, where I'm head of experiences and I'm looking at partnership uh, for the platform. Uh, or you will find me as well writing my PhD, which I'm finishing this year, uh, on social power structure at NASA's uh, the space agency. Uh, and it's a PhD in geography. So, you know, it's a mix of all of these different places but I'm also speaking a lot you know doing a lot of so I'm traveling quite a fair amount of bits to communicate about all of this idea and all of the work and where we are going um, so yeah so you, you will find me in all these different places basically and it's fair to say even just through listening to you it's there's a lot on it's I, I, <laughs> I imagine you find it difficult to either say no to stuff or just the sheer amount of stuff that you get invited to do it is I, it's, I think ever since we first met you yeah you've always kind of embraced doing, uh, not kind of doing as much as possible for the sake of doing stuff, just your kind of pure optimism and energy and passion and everything just kind of comes through. How do you manage to work out now what it is that you say yes to and what it is that you kind of go, I'd love to, but there's only one Nelly. I, I just, there aren't enough hours in the day. Um, that's a really good question. I think it's, um, you know, I tend to not say no so often. I mean, it depends. It's like I turn every single brief the way I want to hear them. And I think, you know, my brain is a bit like a nebula. Uh, so it needs a lot of excitement. And so in that sense, I just need to keep on, you know, keep on accepting and 
you know, being moved by everything that I'm bombarded with as much as I bombard on the same side. But it's also realistically, if you want to produce any of the projects I'm doing to the scale that I'm producing them, you need to be able to actually have all of that nebula and all of that network around you. So it's not a question about saying no, it's actually a question about saying yes and actually surrounding yourself with all these fantastic people that can then support you when you have to produce uh, such production. So, um, you know, I think for me, it's not a question of saying no, it's actually about how you can manage expectation, keep people together and actually get them engaged with something that they never sign up for and they find themselves into. So, for example, you're commissioning me to do, I don't know, a new building and I actually end up getting you into a rock concert um, and you're basically doing a mimicry of uh, the building you wanted me to realize. So that would be more the way I tend to do things. So it's not about saying no, it's actually about sort of regrouping the energy into one place so then we can actually all achieve the mission that uh, I set for, you know, for, for the studio. And you, you, you mentioned there to work on the scale of project. I think this interview is going to be slightly different in that we can't not talk about the International Space Orchestra because if you don't know it, I think the rest of this interview is kind of, <laughs> it's very difficult to contextualize. So I kind of want to push it onto you. How do you, because the scale of it is enormous. When people ask you or when you meet someone for the first time, they go, hey, what do you do? How do you introduce the International Space Orchestra? I mean, if I was to make it very tangible, I would just say the International Space Orchestra is basically... The world first orchestra, which is composed uniquely of NASA scientists, SETI Institute of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute, Singularity University, and the International Space University Institute. So you have, you know, you have all a range of space scientists together performing music together. So that would be one side of it, which is, you know, you will agree quite dull. But now if you start to put this back into context and you think in the term of, you know, a federal agency and the fact that, you know, you're playing the Dobro, I'm playing the trumpet but you're the director of NASA and you know I'm astronaut Gagel and I'm playing the percussion then it becomes it starts to become quite uh, surrealistic and if you push it even further then you start to realize that they perform and they reenact Greek tragedy uh, they perform with Diamond Albon Bobby Womack they do punk music with Savages and the Prodigy uh, they go on the biggest stage you can think of um, yeah then and then they are also in space for every single astronaut that goes on the International Space Station they actually have a record of the International Space Orchestra up there. Then you start to get a bit more of the nitty gritty or the food of the International Space Orchestra as a project. And, you know, for me, it was really about actually getting members of the public to connect back with the craft of space exploration, the difficulty behind it. And it wasn't about sharing the beauty of space exploration, but more the sort of the unexpected failure, the complexity of it, the character behind it, how they got there, you know. Um, and all of that. So, and that's what make it, uh, I think, quite a unique um, community. And it's a community. And I think it's very important to remind that is when design go even beyond, you know, uh, an actual format. Like it's not a table, it's not a chair, uh, it's a platform for debate, but it's also a place, you know, that remains. It's a counterculture. It's something that will stay even after I'm dead. Like there will still be an international space orchestra. And that's. Yeah. There was a point when you started that, that I was like, Nelly's actually going to do this. She's going to talk about it really simply. It's going to be like one sentence. <laughs> and then it was like, it, it quickly just becomes a much bigger thing. Um, I guess the thing, the thing that strikes me from that explanation is the scale of the, 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 I mean, you're going into NASA, 
That's right, isn't it? All these organ- all these organisations are kind of subparts and, and bits within NASA. Mm. How the hell <laughs> do you get into NASA? Because I'm sure people have tried, and yet what you talk about and summarise as a very yeah, okay, I get this, but it's not. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You don't come Which from like easy, a yeah. you don't come from a musical background. You're not like an esteemed uh, composer or whatever. You've I don't, I still, and I've seen the film. You, there's a film that documents this whole process. How how do you get into NASA? Yeah, I think this is, uh, you're correct. I am not a musician. I had no budget. I am not a US citizen. So that makes it very difficult to get access to any federal agency in the US. Like the same way that if a US citizen was trying to get in, the European Space Agency will go through massive trouble. Um, you know, yeah, you're totally absolutely correct. It's, uh, it's an impossible project. And I think this is why very early on, I really wanted to do this thing because I thought, okay, there must be a way to actually figure out who are these people? Who are the people behind the space agency? And the bottom line is when it comes to federal space agency everybody has got their email online because it's you know public access public knowledge so you know for me it's been um, it's been pretty much like you know four years of intense hammering uh, technique involved uh, the hammering technique being the other element that my studio do very well which is basically turning every single no into a yes that just means going back and back just like a hammer going back and back and back and back until I find you know I find a way to actually pitch the projects so that I can get through uh, through the grid of you know bureaucracy or uh, an institution itself and I think with NASA it's been uh, it's been really really difficult but the bottom line is to remember that it's not impossible. And that's what this project proves. It's just basically a lot of, you know, hammering, uh, finding who you should talk to, emailing many, many people. And then after, you know, people will do it differently. For me, it's always been about sending millions of emails. So it's not about one and putting all of your, you know, all of your kind of bits into one pocket. It's about actually spreading it out to the entire space agency so that by the time you turn up in front of the gate of NASA Ames Research Center, you know, and you say, I'm the director of the International Space Orchestra. Everybody's like, ah, yeah, you're the crazy French woman who has been emailing <laughs> us 50,000 times. And yeah, we know who you are. And that's what happened with me because I've been emailing them so much that by the time I arrived there, they all knew that there was an International Space Orchestra, although there weren't an International Space Orchestra. And I still had to recruit each of the musicians. And I was bloody lucky. And I think, you know, all of this... You have to start all of this project with uh, this element of naivety. And I hope that we'll keep this forever. So, you know, now I'm in a new phase in my life where obviously I'm post 30 years old. When I did the International Space Orchestra, I was younger. And, um, you know, maybe what defined being quite young is also this naivety or this sort of boldness that you have towards life where you think, I don't care if I look stupid. I don't care. You know, I'm just going for it. And then we will see what happened. And you kind of, you go for it and then you, you decide and you assess afterwards. You know, I, I just want to, for me, the key to every start of any project is to keep that naivety at core. So even though now I've done this project more, much more and to much more bigger scale too, I still will approach every single project with that same element of naivety, forgetting about all the drama of the previous project, everything that went wrong, you know, collaborators that I didn't pick correctly, you know, things that I will try and forget about all of that because actually I will try to remain very positive towards, you know, everything that, you know, the 
projects that are coming up and everything else. I think I think that naivety is a, a, a really nice way of looking at it. I guess, and I totally recognise the challenge of that is as you get older, to keep that 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 you almost forget the experience of what's gone before to to try different things. Otherwise, you become the person that just goes through the same old uh, methods Process. of doing stuff. That's great. So to take you back to that, that um, standing in front of the NASA gates for the first time as the director of the International Space Orchestra, the project that you wanted to do, you had an idea of, from the outside, it looks like this thing has just snowballed into that mass- this massive thing. Is that the case? Or actually, have you kind of fulfilled what it is that you set out to do? You know, it's even, I mean, it's... Creativity is chaos. And I think we always tend to forget about that. Like we think in terms of linear process, and I can speak about this project very linearly and speak about the production capacity of it and, you know, how then this person came in and this became that and da, da, da. But I think realistically, this project started actually in Chernobyl. So I was visiting uh, the nuclear power station, Chernobyl, which exploded back in 1986, I think. I'm guessing also somewhere not that easy to get into. Yes, but I was actually, you know, it was in Ukraine. Uh, I was actually going there with some students from the Architectural Association, the Field Division. Uh, and so we had like 40 students. And so I was one of the, you know, tutor on board together with Kate Davis and Liam Young run the, the old platform. And they actually did all the job of getting access to that spot. And so I went there and so I was in front, standing in front of, you know, Reactor 4, which is a place that exploded and created the whole, you know, drama of Chernobyl. And at that point, I was actually listening throughout the journey to operatic form, like I was listening to opera and I was trying to figure out how I could embed opera in my next project because I always thought that that was a beautiful way to encompass, you know, human emotion. And so at the same time, I was looking at listening to opera and looking at, you know, the drama that happened inside this mission control and actually learning a bit more about that drama because actually what happened inside this mission control is like a young guy was in charge of a very simple procedure inside mission control and he fucked it up, right? He pressed the wrong button and then the old drama of Chernobyl happened. And it's very silly and at the same time, it kind of says a lot about the architectural uh, level or capacity of that mission control and how is it that actually a human being can kind of go through all of this net and go through all of the design of that mission control to actually go and do an action that you know shouldn't have happened. So I started to be really obsessed. I mean, it's like it's it is absolute obsession. It's like nearly mental obsession. I would say like uh, sickness, right? And I started to study everything. I will have all these maps in my place of this guy crossing this, uh, you know, studying all his paths and how he made his way there. And so at the same time as I was doing all of that, I um, got Charlie Bolden, so he's the, the NASA administrator. I was reading through NASA and how NASA, because it's always been a fascination of mine, you know, space always been, but I never thought I was going to. To go there at that point, you know, I just listened to Charles Bolden and Charles Bolden was saying failure is not an option. Failure is not an option. And, um, you know, and I'm here to tell you that American leadership in space will just prove that one more time. And I was, and that was, you know, a quote that he had in 2011. And, uh, and I was like, but this is so wrong, right? Because everything about space is about failure. It's about working out through unexpected failure. And that was also a sentence from the Apollo area, you know, from the moment when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went up there. So I was like, but what is this agency now? Because we are talking about back in the 70s and we are still talking about communicating with members of the public the same way that we would have done it back in the 70s. And I was like, this is totally BS. There is a massive issue with the way they communicate with members of the public. And so I 
started to dig even more further into it uh, and started to look at, you know, numbers and the fact that only 2% of the U.S. citizens want to support NASA as a space program. NASA being a federal agency make it very difficult for them to get funding. And so all of this smashed together, eventually got me the International Space Orchestra. And then one day I decided that actually the way forward was to create an orchestra that will perform in an operatic term and reenact as if they were in mission control, everything that went wrong during the Apollo 11 mission control. And that was the project. And then I started to dig through it. Even further, I looked at Greek tragedy and coercive system in the Greek tragedy, how the Greek used to, you know, uh, use tragedy as a format to actually share political agenda and look at it from that perspective and look at the outreach program at NASA and figure out how that could fit into it and then pitch it back to them. And that's how the project happened. But you can fully understand that this is not a rational way of thinking and that is the reality of the project that's how the project came together and i think it's but and i i think it's amazing i think it's it's also it's that non-rational way of thinking that's that's made it happen i'm sure yeah. had other people tried to make it happen through other means it's they got sh they it gets shut down and it doesn't happen you mentioned there about your obsession with uh, space growing up there's a there's a nice um Quite about the way in which you talk about your work that talks about bringing the scientific and creative communities together through carefully designed experiences. You also talk about your working method as being to go in situ in scientist research centers and design events that radically change and adapt their attitudes to the research to a non-scientific audience's creative needs. Design should be embedded in a physical experience. It should be something you remember, like seeing a painting and remembering the tone of it. Correct. So when you go all the way back, were you... Were you kind of, as a kid, were you very creative as well as being heavily into your science? Is this something that if you chat to the people that you were with growing up, they'd be like, yeah, of course, this is what Nelly's going to go and do? Or kind of where do those influences start to come in? Um, so I started as a kid, well, I've, you know, I've always been creative. I think we can say that. I always, I mean... I, Maybe not creative, I would say super active. I was a super active kid. You know, I would do tons of different things, but I will, you know, for me, actually, humanities always be much more important than science itself. Like, I was really fascinated by philosophy, fascinated by geography, fascinated by history, fascinated basically by humanity. I'm actually, I'm actually quite a positive mindset, right? So, and I, I think you're super positive. I think that's one of the things that always, any conversation, if you're ever feeling down, just get an email to Nelly or get her on the phone because you immediately feel better afterwards. I think you're inherently positive. So, yeah, so I was, you know, I've always been a quite positive kid. And I think to me, it was all about how, you know, how can I share that passion I had for life to some extent with, you know, others. And in that sense, I had my grandmother and I think my family had a really key role to that. Uh, my grandmother and my aunties, uh, you know, I mean, I come from an Armenian family. So, you know, they went through the genocide, the Armenian genocide. So they were a family of, uh, you know, immigrants. So they started having a textile factory, like most of the Armenian when they arrived in France started to grow textile, you know, businesses. And my dad on his side is from Algeria, 
born in Algeria, but, you know, Jewish Algerian. So, and move, you know, like all the Algerian war, la, 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 la. So, you know, like the whole history of colonization and France and, you know, a kind of quite destroyed generation type of thing. And so it was a mix of the collide of the two, right? And I think, you know, my grandma always been a key character in all my performances. I've always been driven in performance since the very, very early age. And I will dress her up. I would put her makeup. I started my classing on mold making with my aunt. One day we had to brought her to the emergency because I tried to make a molding of her arm with actual pure plaster straight into the bucket. And then, of course, her hand remained stuck <laughs> into the bucket. But, you know, everybody in the family would be that supportive that my aunt will actually keep her hand inside the bucket. Well, and, you know, and she would be like that. And we had to go to the emergency to remove the whole thing. And, you know, it's been all of this crazy, or I, one day I dressed up my grandma as Rapunzel, you know, Rapunzel. Yep. So I made her this giant wig that will go all the way from the top floor of the house, all the way to the garden to kind of, and she was screaming, help me, help me. I can not see anything from is the this, castle. Is this the same I, aunt? Yeah, no, that's my grandma, this one. Okay. And then I even married my grandma with my sister on the top of the car. I made like a special uh, apron so that my grandma could actually be on the top of the car while my granddad will be driving the car. I mean, I did all of did, these crazy did, did things. Did your family have to draw straws as to who was going to get involved in your next I, little I, project? I just didn't have any choice. I would be going back at them and again and again, and I will not let them go until I will do this project. And I think this is the thing is like, they let me be to some extent. That's, fa I mean, I was just so lucky in that sense. And I was coming from a tiny place in South of France, Valence, you know, and I just did all of this crazy stuff. I remember one day I even let my friend, I was doing a project on uh, criminology, uh, criminology and forensic, forensic uh, research. And I got all my friends to come into my house. I, I, I feed them with food and then I made them vomit everywhere. And I kept the vomit. <laughs> of themselves into the freezer. I did all of this crazy stuff. And then I was also doing painting at the same time, but I was also kind of good in science. I mean, I was good in science. I had an A-level in science. So I was doing biology, physics, and I always been told, I mean, my dad always been very you know, quite straightforward thinker, totally the opposite of my mum, in fact, which is probably why now they are divorced, which is probably for the best. But I think, you know, he always been like, you have to go into science, you have to go into science, and this is where the future is. Well, my mum always been very much more laid back about this stuff. And um, and so I was good into science, but it never been really a, the real passion of mine. And then eventually when I finished the A-level and I got my A-level in science, then I decided, well, look, what should I do? Uh, and so I applied for a medicine school and I wanted to become a GP. Uh, and then I started there for about a month, but I also applied for fine art and I got taken into fine art. And, uh, and then at that point, there was a choice of, you know, do you do medicine and kill some patients or do you go and, oh, and, save, and save some patients? <laughs> and save <laughs> eventually. And so that's, you know, and that was the choice. I mean, listening to those stories growing up, it all kind of makes sense now. It's like, <laughs> actually, this is, yeah, why have we ever questioned how you go about doing what you do? You talk about that, that uh, choice between the medicine and the fine art. So that's where kind of your formal training started. You did... Um, you, that, you did fine art before going on to do textile design. Is that right? That's correct. So what, what, what was it about textile design at that point that you're like, this is, this is the next logical step? And what was the kind of work that you were doing there during that time? 
I think, you know, it's a very, I mean, I'm speaking for everybody there who is like finishing their A-level and, you know, and you feel like you have to make that choice because, you know, if you don't make it right, then that's going to determine your entire career down the line. And actually, I realized quite quickly that that wasn't the case. Like, in a way, you know, I really wanted a school in Paris. That was like the, the school I really wanted. It was called Olivier Serre. And it was, you know, we have only few schools which are free that you don't have to pay for. I mean, fine art is one of them, but you, you know, of course you have to go through competition. And the same way for Paris, there is four schools that are free. But of course, there is a huge demand from all students everywhere. And so I applied there after my A-level and I failed. And I failed and they didn't want me. And so, and I got to do my fine art and I learned about painting and I, I loved every single bit of it. But then I was still really much like, yeah, fuck it. Like <laughs> I failed. I didn't got this. And you're allowed to have one, you know, and at that time you had you had the chance to pick up the, the, to try to get one year after your A-level, but after that was it. So I had one more chance to make it to that school and that's what I did. So after, you know, my first year in fine art, I applied again and then I got in and I was like, yes, you know, I'm in there. And so I went in there and then at that point I had the choice between doing something which was more about sculpture. So learning about sculpture and making all of that or textile design. And at that time in this school specifically, textile design was the most uh, unusual, um, you know, teaching, like he, he had something about creative direction. He had definitely something to do with textile, but he had a lot to do with storytelling. And you might think it doesn't make sense because textile is pretty much like a very analog thing. You know, you do a piece of textile, but actually, you know, it's about your environment pretty much and how you can design every single bit of it. And so I was really driven by that. And also my family, remember, uh, Armenian family had an old textile business and it kind of made me feel to go back in that. You know, my auntie gave me a sewing thing and I, I have to admit that I was absolutely shit in textile. I was like probably the worst textile designer in the universe. Like I would make things like inspired from Chernobyl Kid already back in the days. Uh, it was pretty gore, everything I would do, or even when I would do knitting or uh, anything like that, I was really crap at it. I would make a mop. You know, my grandma used to call my design as being like mop design because I was whole everywhere into my, my sample of textile. So I wasn't that amazing at it, but what I was good at was to tell story, right? And to build up all of this, you know, creative palette and, you know, and color was something that I was quite strong at, like, you know, putting a sort of a whole environment of things. And so, yeah, so I did that textile uh, thing and then I went on and I thought, okay, well, at that point I had an ex-boyfriend in the south of France and I, you know, I finished my first year in textile came back in the south of France and at that point I meet with him and he introduced me to his Japanese girlfriend. And so he met this woman, you know, on the internet. And I mean, think about it. He, we came from a really tiny village and he met with this woman coming from Tokyo. She was about, I don't know, 10 years more than he was or 15 years more than he was. And so she turned up and she started to tell me all about Tokyo. And, and I thought, Oh, that's, you know, that's really interesting. And she invited me to Tokyo and she said, you should come. If you come, you can stay at my place. It's quite a weird thing for your ex-boyfriend's new girlfriend to invite you to Tokyo to stay with her. That's, but I guess, you know, <laughs> a trip to Tokyo. Tiny, tiny village, you know, I was like, this is it. <laughs> and so what I did is like, you know, in the South of France, you do a lot of fruit. I mean, I was used as a kid to like just pick up fruit to make, you know, your pocket money. And so eventually I did my pocket money and then managed to pay my plane ticket to go to Tokyo. And at that point, I just stayed with them in the house in Tokyo, in the core of Kabukicho, which is a place where you have all the Yakuza and, you know, all the prostitutes, everything. It was like the hot area of 
Tokyo. And at that point, I was like, I'm going to do an internship with Tokyo, you know, kimono master. And but actually, it was easily said, but not easily easily done. It took me about a month, so I had three months really there. Uh, and so I had, you know, just a bit of time to kind of pick up and try to find out, you know, some people that would take me into an internship. And so I did about 150 different kimono master before one accepted to take me. And the only reason why they took me is because I learned some few words in Japanese and I said them all in totally the different order and totally in the wrong order. And they thought I was funny. And so they took me on. And then at that point, I had to cut my finger, promise I will never reveal any of the secrets they taught me. <laughs> and then I, I found myself into this incredible place with three granddad three brother uh, which were kimono master like proper kimono master like the the, the my shisho so shisho in japanese me my master uh, one of his kimono was the price of one ferrari and he was golden like all of the thread of the kimono were made of gold and he will do all of the upper collection for isemiyaki we will see isemiyaki turning up into the old you know the studio and the, it became a an absolute human adventure in a way. And then they made a TV series of it because it turned out that my friend girlfriend was working TV at NHK. And then they made a, yeah, a, an actual TV series called Nelly and the Japanese. And for basically the two months that I was there, I turned, you know, people will stop me in the street. And I was like, you know, like the round French people that they will go and follow on the TV series. And that's, and it was just totally mental. And then I came back in Paris. It's incredible. It's, uh, <laughs> but again, it's like when you tell it, it's like there's part of me that just isn't surprised. The part of me is just like, of course that happens, Danelli. So you, but it you, happens to everybody, I think. We just need to see these opportunities. And I think this is a problem. It's like we always tend to be driven by negative feeling about things. But I think, you know, a big part of the, I think, the creative learning is to actually screw yourself at it. And taking risk is a big thing. Uh, and I don't think you can do any of that without actually have taken this ring and put yourself into, you know, every time I feel I'm uncomfortable and, I, I, and I'm scared, I'm, you know, genuinely you know, I was really young. I didn't want it to go in Tokyo. I didn't want it to do any of that, in fact. I was really, really scared about all of it. I would rather stay with my grandma at the time, just, you know, be there in peace in the south of France. But it was something I had to do because this is the type of opportunity that life is there for. So I, I totally agree with you, but there's part of me that is still that person that would prefer to be at home with their grandmother in the south of France. Mm. And I think you recognize that within... Not, not even just young creatives. I think creators of all generations, all walks of life, there is just that thing of like playing it safe. So what what is it that kind of drives you to push it? Because if you're saying that you could, you, you're well aware of that feeling of being able to go, yeah, I could just be in the south of France with my grandmother, but I know that I need to be doing this. Is it that you, you've done that a few times and that's that's now what you recognize as pushing yourself? Or is it is it just a trait within your DNA that goes... I'm just going to keep pushing. I'm just going to keep trying to make something happen because yeah. I, th I think the thing that I'm interested in is for, for people listening to this who are younger creatives, it's very easy to hear someone say that. How do you actually start to act on it? How do you actually start to kind of go, yes, I can see that this is what happens within other people. So I now need to go and put myself out of my comfort zone. I think that's where partner in crimes come in. So, you know, every time I start a new project, I have a partner in crime or few partner in crime. And that's basically people, philosopher, you know, I mean, they can be whoever you want. 
that I print a picture of them and they literally sit close to me in my bed. I mean, not in my bed, but on the side of my bed. And I will just talk to them. I mean, I, I know it's a bit mental, but, you know, or talk to them in my head, of course, not vocally. But, you know, it's just basically finding the people that had the strengths before and looking at them as in like even your peers. And I think it's a big part of the creative learning too, is respecting your peers and also look at them for what they've done and to some extent learn from them. And, uh, you know, for me, it's been like one key, key element to my studio is I do design, but I do it with the existentialist attitude. And if you go back to what existentialism is, it's a philosophy, right? Which was, you know, pretty much created by Jean-Paul Sartre, you know, uh, Camus. So it's basically this notion that, uh, you know, you're not born to, to be the queen. You're not born, you know, it's like there is no fatality in life. It's pretty much like you are what you want to be. Uh, and so to some extent, you can blame anyone else than yourself if you're not where you want it to be. And that to me has been always really, I mean, a driving force. Like I always have read, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, always Camus. And I think specifically with this type of project, that's what gave me the strength to go to Japan. I just thought, you know, what would have Sartre do? What would have Beauvoir de Beauvoir done? What Simone would have done? You know, Simone, tell me, would you have gone there? Yes, hell, you would have gone there. Uh, or you know, looking at their stories and actually figuring out for myself where I sit between that. And, uh, you know, and existentialism is a really key part of, you know, my creative learning is to say that uh, I'm not going to give up. I just, I if I fail, only one person can be blamed and that's myself. And that just means that it's really tough on a day-to-day -day basis as well because I can go and blame you, Will, if, you know, I fuck up doing this interview or anything like that. It's only about, you know, me fucking it up. So I have a tendency to be quite harsh on myself too, um, which, you know, it's probably not the best way of moving forward. But at the same time, I think it, it got me to do all of this project without, you know, like, like just, you know, being, um, yeah, just going on with it, basically. Uh, so you've, you, you finish up in France and you, uh, you identify the RCA and that design interactions course. Yes. Uh, how, what does that application look like? Because I'm guessing the portfolio is still quite textile heavy or, or is your work towards the end of France actually developing I mean, something totally different? Textile heavy. If you call my grandma on the top of the car, um, marrying all my family, uh, you know, for, I mean, it was just absolutely mental. That was my final year project. I did the old Chernobyl collection as well at the time. So, you know, Chernobyl has been there for quite a while in my head. So, yeah, I mean, if you call that textile driven, I don't know, but I did like all of these weird things really. And so I, you know, I was there looking for what I was going to do in my master's degree. And so, and I wasn't too sure, you know, and then eventually a friend of mine showed me this course, Design Interaction. And she was like, have you seen this thing? And then I read through it and it was about, you know, people and not consumer. It was about storytelling and not design as in, you know, is a share on a table. And that straight, I mean, really literally just straight resonated to me. And I didn't know who Tony Dunn was. I didn't know any of it. But I also knew 
that that would be scary. I also knew that speaking in English would be scary because I was shit in English. I also knew that it would be probably a really hard and tough, you know, experience. And so I thought, fuck it, I'm just going to go for it. And at the time I had an incredible boyfriend that I was going on since, you know, four years. He was like my love from, you know, high school onwards. And so, you know, I could have been really happy and he was going to move in Paris to actually be with me. So, you know, I could have had this sort of like happy, schmoozy life with my boyfriend, you know, da da da. And I thought, fuck that. I'm just going to go to London. And so this is basically how it started. I applied. I got through the interview. I turned up at the interview at that point. Tony Dunn and I remember asked me, so how do you think you work question uh, technology? Because it still remain a uh, design interaction, still remain a, a course which was about questioning what technology might entail in the next five, 10 years. And I didn't read that part. I had no idea. And I was like, why is he talking to me about technology? You know, what was he on about? And so I started to get on because I wasn't speaking correct in English. So I started to try and mimicry what the Chernobyl explosion was like. And at that point, I made this gigantic move in the interview. And I literally clapped, you know, on both sides, there was two students. And they both took my hand in their face. And it became this sort of like, and I was so sorry. And then, you know, they re I really hurted them. And it became this totally chaotic, chaotic interview. And then at that point, I brought a huge, you know, a suitcase with tons of drawing, ton of work. And I, I, they couldn't get me out of the room because I had all this shit everywhere. And so eventually I thought, that's it. I fuck up because, of course, I didn't manage to communicate anything. And then eventually I got in, which is a pure miracle. And then it was just the most incredible experience for two years where, you know, I was with people coming from the industry, from Nokia, people coming from sociology, coming from mathematics, all different age. I was the youngest, which was also quite funny. I mean, in a way, it's like, you know, I was like in La La Land and they were all pretty much in another step in their life. But it was a perfect combination of creative. It was like the perfect cast of people, basically. And and, you know, and I learned so much there. It was, and I was working there every single night, day. I will never go to bed. I will hate sleeping for my, all my years at the RCA. It was just absolutely incredible. I mean, I don't know if it was just a place where you were free to experiment with ideas, meet with incredible creative, learn about new technology and think in totally, totally different ways and means. And I was allowed to do that. And that was, and you know, and I was told off as well, a lot. Uh, I definitely want to hear more about it. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break. Uh, and then, yeah, I very much want to hear more about your time at the RCA. Thanks for listening. I just wanted to take this quick opportunity to tell you a little bit more about Lecture in Progress. Lecture in Progress is a resource to help the next generation of creatives make better career decisions by inspiring and informing them of the breadth of opportunities that exist in the creative industry. Aware that the gap between education and industry is only widening, Lecture in Progress will help demystify the creative world we work in. We'll explain everything from the huge range of jobs that exist, how people got into the industry and how much you can expect to get paid, right through to how a project comes together and taking a look into the studios and workplaces in which they happen. We see Lecture in Progress being funded through annual membership, largely made up of current students and recent graduates. We're aiming to build a relationship with these members as the site grows and develops over the next 12 months and we want to make sure that we deliver the content that they will find most useful and that can't be found anywhere else. Members to Lecture in Progress will get full access to the website and archive, become part of a network of like-minded individuals, they'll receive member-only offers and promotions and invitations to events, 
They'll also have the opportunity to apply for funding for creative projects. They'll be invited to studio visits as well as entry to our annual awards programme. Please do check out the first version of the website at lectureinprogress.com. There we've put together a number of articles and resources that best demonstrate what we plan to do. You can also find a link to the Kickstarter campaign that will be running throughout October. We've tried to make it as simple as possible to get behind the project and hope you'll like the rewards we've made, many of which are only available on Kickstarter. Please do back the project and all being well, we'll be back on the 1st of January 2017. Back to the interview. Hello, welcome back. I'm with Nelly Benhayoun and uh, just before the break, you were talking about the RCA and what a kind of perfect, um, almost like a perfect storm of, of good things happening. Was it quite instant when you started on that course, you knew that this was... You, you'd found somewhere that was right for your creative practice to develop and start making projects that maybe not made more sense, but maybe had a place in which the the tutoring and the peers and the kind of all that stuff came together for you to really develop as a creative. I mean, I think education is what you do with it, right? And I think, you know, even though there is some people that done the Royal College of Art and, you know, have done nothing with it or have not used, you know, this as a platform to kind of experiment with ideas. I think you just need to be prepared for that journey. And, um, and you know, you shouldn't go into any educative learning or creative learning without actually getting ready to fail, to experiment again and again and again, to lose yourself, uh, to be told off, to try again. Da, da, da. And so at that point, I, I had no idea where, how I was going to come out of this course and I let it happen. And I think it's about preparing yourself as well mentally to know that, you know, you arrive with a certain set of agenda, but you should totally wipe it out and let it be for the time being of these two years where you're given a chance to, you know, learn in some of these best, you know, university and places. And I think this is a thing as well. Just apply for these places, even though, you know, it's dead expensive. And, and at the time there was, there was bursary. So I didn't have to pay a penny actually to go in the Royal College. Like I, I had the support. And I think this is a thing, just try, try, apply. And then if you get in, then you figure it out. And then you find the cash to make it happen. Because I think if you apply for, you know, Royal College of Arts, Santos and Martin, because let's face it, right? And I think this is what we are talking about you know backstage together will but the same way then there is harvard for science there is also harvard for you know art and education and you want to be in the best schools and i think for me to pick the right departments about looking at who is teaching in there don't just take whatever course because it sounds okay look who is teaching in there figure out whether or not they could be your peers look at whether or not their practice is of inspire to you i also truly believe that you cannot teach design unless you have a practice. I don't believe that, you know, I mean, design educator, fantastic, but, you know, I might be told off by saying this, but, you know, if you don't get on with your practice as well, I mean, I don't know how you can teach design or even be in touch with what is happening outside there. So you have to be able to have your own practice. So check this out. Look at, you know, the story of that course. How long has this course been there? If it's just arrived on the plate one year ago, you know, very likely that things will still be kind of like mushy, mushy, you know, things are not really kind of nailed down. So you might not want to go and experiment there or actually, you know, pay a fortune and not be sure about what is going to be. Uh, but again, you know, if it's driven by someone with a fantastic director, then why not? But, you know, do study this and then apply, apply to every single of these best world renowned school and just go for it. You go, you apply, you do the interview, and then you give it all. And then if you got in there, then you 
then you figure out how you can get the money to actually make it there. And there is always way. Because then you can email your tutor. You can literally beg them to try and help you to find a bursary. You can go and find a support from, you know, a tech company, anyone, tell them that you will support them or do some free work for them over the summer. There is always ways to make things happen. And I think uh, don't let yourself be lethargic with this stuff because I think, I still think that this places on you and think about your curriculum too. Because in a way, if you want to be, you know, I mean, the Royal College of Art did open me massive door. You know, when you're graduate from the RCA, you come with like a whole range of an alumni and network, you know, like, all my friends from the RCA, I'm still friends with them. And they are director of IDEO, you know, director of YouTube, director of Google. They are, you know, they, they are just, they've done incredibly well. They are at Apple, they are everywhere. And uh, it's the same with Central St. Martins or the same with like other schools that are having this really good network of alumni. Then, you know, you can tackle that because we, I will always support a RCA graduate. I will always support a Central St. Martins uh, graduate. And I think there is this sort of, you know, um, yeah, there is this network at stake as well and that's a big support of you if you fall down at some point you will always have that uh, to kind of soften things up for you I also think with those bigger institutions the ones that are more well known to a it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult to imagine having those conversations about trying to get a bursary or a, a, a big tech, tech company to support you but once you've got that place once you can say hey here's who I, this is who I am. This is where I'm going. I'm looking for some support. It, you can start to try and open a few doors. You're not going, oh, I'd quite like to do this. It's, there's a little bit more drive. But I think we it. should flip things around as well. I think every single student should be outside in the street fighting for their right to actually have free education. You know, I spend my time going and trying to get bursary for my students. And because, you know, I truly believe that education should be for free. And so, and I think, you know, that is a big part of like getting bursary in. But I think it's also for students to go and say, hey, 17 grand for my studies is way too much. And I just find that, the you know, especially here, like everybody let it be. While, you know, you should, everybody should have been, you know, pretty much in the street nonstop to make, to avoid this to happen. I mean, if they were to do this in France, you can be sure that nothing will, like the entire country will not move for like as long as it takes to make sure that education will remain free. And I, I would like to see this happen as well in the UK. We shouldn't pay for education. Quite political. Yeah, but it has to be. <laughs> education is political. And, he, you know. What were, what were the projects that you're doing with the RCA? Because the feedback that you were getting and both from your tutors and your peers, was it this kind of, was it still this kind of super ambitious, um, kind of experimental, it's it's about uh, engaging someone in a moment and trying to communicate something. Was it what they were expecting? Did you get kind of great feedback? Was, was it that thing that kind of was the impetus to start that momentum to get to a project like the International Space, Space Orchestra? Um. I mean, I think that when it comes to creative, you know, education, it always comes down to this dialectical approach, right? So you have tutorials, you know, your your tutor will come and like discuss with you about one issue and, you know, the critique and accepting that critique and sort of being able to actually discuss around that critique, build up a context for your work, you know, learning about all of these different aspects. And I think definitely the RCN, my tutors were really good at, you know, putting that critique back into the context, you know, never be critical, but always kind of trying to make sure that, you know, you, you can learn and it can be constructive to some extent. I, you know, 
that was a really fantastic, you know, start to um, to 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 start building up confidence, at least in me, that I could come up with, you know, my own studio and so on. But I think. I think, uh, you know, you have so much, you learn so much when you're doing it and then you finish, you finish your, you know, your, your master's degree and then you're kind of left there. And it's a true fact that you're not just going to hang around and come back every day to see your tutor and beg them for their help, but they were still there. And I still came back and had chat with them. But I think what was then really important was the network that you built at the RCA. And I was really sociable, as you can imagine. And so with all the recent graduates, we started to take uh, over Sunbury workshop, which was, you know, one of these workshop, you know, in Big Lane. And so we started to create our own studio. We would share, like, I don't know, we are six in a tiny room sharing, you know, offices. Uh, and so it started there and it was really hard at the beginning. It took about I would say three years where I was selling pasta, I was teaching, I was keep sorry, on doing. Sorry, you just glossed over selling pasta there. Yeah, I was selling pasta at Bro uh, Broadway Market. Gotcha. Not Broadway Market, Borough Market. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, that makes a little bit more sense now. So that was a job that you were doing yeah, to just to earn enough money the to bill, pay rent. To pay the bill and keep on doing the work because I knew it was going to be a long, you know, difficult journey. And it was just like that. And then, but because we were a few in the same situation, we kind of like hold hands together and we decided that, yeah, it was going to be hard, but we will share things. So we did the London Design Week. We started to go and you know, force ourselves to come up with new work in order to actually keep that momentum that created the, the, that the final show at the RCA created, keep building on the press partnership that we had uh, from that final show and make sure that we keep in touch with them and tell them what we are doing. But of course, you know, you don't have the machine of the RCA anymore. So it's really hard to actually make your next project happen to the, to the quality that they had at the RCA. So you have to really, you know, look at sisterhood and, you know, kind of, support each other in order, like you might have, you know, your neighbor might have a machine that he can help you with, you know, screwdriver, I get that from that, that he's better at making screws, so he might help me or, you know, and that's how it started. And then the other thing that I did really early on was to write grant application. You know, I started to write not one, not two, I, I wrote 150 a month grant application for about two years. For your own personal projects? To yeah, for my own projects. And I failed all of them. I mean, there is not even one of them that I got after the graduation. It was really bloody hard. But then again, keep on doing the networking, da, da, da. I got a role as creative director at Chunt for about, you know, a year or so. And so I was given the space to experiment in London Underground Tunnel and do a lot of projects. So that's where Super Sonic Boom came through. And I think it's about being quite strategic because I did some projects twice because I knew I could do them. And then, you know, like, for example, if you take the example of Super K Sonic Boom, which is, a, a, you know, an installation that gives you a sonic boom experience when a particle is traveling faster than the speed of light, which I did together with scientists in China, Nobel Prize of Physics, and so on. I did it inside the London Underground Tunnel, and I was lucky because it was a, a Shunt production. So Shunt paid for them, you know, all the technical side of things. And, you know, and so I, we did that. And then a good friend of mine who is still 
you know, we are still working together. I mean, all of this is to say that, you know, like these collaborations that you build straight from your graduation, they remain with you forever. Nick Ballon, the uh, photographer, came to take a picture of it, which was absolutely stunning, beautiful shot of it. And uh, this went everywhere in the press and then, you know, build up a momentum. And then, of course, then I use that shot to then apply for a grant, a science and technology facility grant and Institute of Physics grant, which were a governmental grant. And I sent them this picture and that was safe to them because something that seemed totally wacky at first, here is a picture, I've done it once, so it's pretty a safe thing to do it a second time. And then I got the money, but then what did that do for me was I hate doing project twice. But I did it twice. I did Super Kesonic Boom Silver, Super Kesonic Boom Gold, and I only did it twice so then I can say... I did it. I did it twice. And then actually the second time I did it on budget, exactly on schedule, la, 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 because I knew I've done it already one time. So I reassured governmental, uh, you know, grant that I could make things and I could achieve them really well. And then I even paid for a, a scientific assessment. So, you know, things were actually really written down that I fully accept, you know, went over the objective and goals. And what did that do for me? That did that actually every single grant that I applied for after that were successful. And the, the grant was the route you wanted to go because because what strikes me about a few of those projects, um, including Supercasonic Boom, um, the other volcano, which uh, for anyone that doesn't know, was a series of semi-domesticated volcanoes housed for a couple of weeks in the living spaces of volunteers. Uh, the Sawyer's chair, if I said that right, that, yeah. accurately, that accurately reproduces the three stages of the Sawyer's rocket launch. The, there isn't like a huge... Um, other than a other than a brand getting on board to just go, hey, we're just going to badge it, and we just want to be kind of seen alongside it. Was the commercial context of your work? You always wanted to pursue the grants to make it kind of maybe this sounds a, a little kind of grandiose, but but so it's a purer project that it's very much coming from you. It's not about having a, a tech brand stamped on the side of it. But I think even if I had a tech brand, I would have probably turned it around, so then it becomes something that you know, doesn't compromise the vision. And I think this is the other way as well. It's like, even though brand have got their own, you know, agendas and there is always a way to make it work. And I'm sure you will agree, you know, it's nice that, that, you know, you still manage to be, it's nice that even though you will work with a lot of brands too. And I think this is coming back to being creative as well in the way you pitch things. And uh, yeah, and I think that's also one of the strengths I might have is probably into like pitching things and making them. But yeah, you correct that all my first work were like pure, uh, grant finding, you know, people to support it, uh, but mainly from the federal side of things. Um, yeah. And then after the brand came in. What's interesting about the way in which you talk about the brand there is it's kind of similar in which in the, in the way in which you talked about uh, getting um, master's degree applications off. It's like, get, get them interested first, get them to say they want to work with you and then kind of work backwards to work out how you're actually going to make it happen. It's, it's, I mean, when you talk about it, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. Just just get them in and then work it out from there. Don't kind of, don't try and work it out from the start and sell them that. It's about get a brand to say, yes, we want to work with you. We want to do this and then work it back to make sure that it's still what you want to do. That's correct. And I think I will add, but I will add this only when you have, you know, proved that you can achieve because don't go with this arrogant attitude straight from the start. But I'm, you know, I'm someone that whenever I have a brand coming in, if I'm not happy, then that's it. 
I'm out of it. And I never compromise with, you know, the vision. And I think it's like, I'm in a really good position in the sense that I don't do anything that I don't think is right. And so in that sense, I mean, right, as in according to my own standard in a way. And so if I'm not happy, I just go out and that's it. Uh, and so I'm never, you know, respecting, I, I like, you know, I like design through conflict. So in a way, I would never go to a brand by that, like they asked me, do this, and I would do it. I never do that. It's like, I do this, and then if you want, you can come on board. But if you don't, then that's your loss kind of thing. But I think that comes with also, you have to do, have done this. Don't go with that attitude straight from the start, I think. Go and build up the profile, and then you can take that sort of standpoint and make sure that whenever you partner with a brand, you sort of like can build up that sort of conflictual relationship, and you need to work. And of course, only a few brands will accept that. But I think there is something about, you know, the creative uh, that, you know, they will never be able to totally grasp. And so to some extent, it's fine to just be able to, you know, if they come to you, it's because they want your vision. So therefore, you know, there is nothing against the fact that you can pitch it in a certain way. And, and I think you're absolutely spot on there. It's, it's, it's reminding yourself that a, a brand wants to talk to you or a, a commercial, yeah. whoever it is, wants to talk to you. Therefore, you're doing something right. You don't have to kind of bend over and, and, and just change your whole kind of passion and direction. Um, we talked about a number of those projects um, straight after uni. We've talked about the International Space Orchestra, which to be totally honest, you could probably talk about all day and still unearth super interesting things. The other project that um, I want to kind of touch on is your film from last year, uh, Disaster Playground. Yes. It's based on an investigation of emergency procedures for disasters such as earthbound rogue asteroids. Uh, the film includes an original soundtrack featuring electronic music uh, from Ed Banger Records and The Prodigy. And it also features an orchestra, uh, orchestration, an orchestra, a bit from the orchestra, <laughs> from the International Space Orchestra, world premiere at South by Southwest. Where kind of because I mean I've seen the trailer for that film and it looks absolutely incredible I know that it's not just a film there are interactive elements that go with it what kind of and, and with the film that accompanies the International Space Orchestra it's like it's it's actually Nelly Benhain director but it, it kind of where do you um, where do you what how kind of how do you describe that project in terms of your creative endeavour is it the film is it the interactive bits is it actually just putting something out and watching people engage with it how do you kind of where do you either get your enjoyment or kind of where do you say this is how do you describe it that was a very long question for something that could have probably been a lot no, shorter. but i think it's kind of coming back to you know what i believe design is i believe that as designer you have to also take the stand of you know director fundraiser producer you need to be able to be a part of all of these different elements of the creative industry and you can't just like lay back and just not be a part of all of it and so to some extent you know disaster playground like you said is a multi-platform project right there is the exhibition component there is a book component there is uh, the mi micro clip vi uh, version of it there is you know the actual feature lens movie and so each of them were there to actually also connect with different audiences so the film audience the design audience the art audience uh, the academic audience as well and so getting all of that together as part of the project because I also wanted this project to go back to the scientific community which is something that usually I'm never really kind of fully embracing in the project because I, I'm really strong at believing that 
that it's power to the people and I'm kind of, you know, working for the public more than I'm working for science. Uh, and in that sense, here it seems right that I will share the learning from the making of the film together back with the scientists that were willing to share their time and passion in, you know, as part of the project. And so what happened was I actually started to write academic paper and write, you know, a whole chunk because, you know, I'm finishing my PhD too. So about, you know, the emergency procedure and how we expand them through the movie. And then I send this back to all of the, you know, scientists together with the cut of the movie. And actually the, the reaction was, Fantastic in the sense that to some extent they, they heard it. You know, everybody who say that a scientist doesn't have any critical thinking is, you know, missing the point there because actually that proved me big time that they do hear things even when they come from a different perspective. And to some extent, this film is showing them in all their vulnerability. You see them in their office. I'm hammering them. I'm being absolutely terrible with them. I turn up with a giant dinosaur, a giant red phone, and I'm like here telling them, now nah, here you go. Here's the time you have to to like go and tell me who is next on the chain of command. Are you sure it's the correct person? And I shout, 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 put them under massive pressure in order to get them back into, you know, how they might perform on the day if an asteroid was to strike. And so it's showing them sometimes they say, I don't know. And to say that in front of the camera, I don't know, but I'm also, you know, a part of, you know, NASA as a federal agency or a part of the United Nations. And so they took this learning back and the beauty of it is now they are using it at the United Nations as part of the peaceful use of outer space office. So it's now something that they are actually fully rehearsing with actors. So they understand the value of this reenactment. Uh, NASA, you know, uh, basically open up a planetary defense coordination office as of January 2016. And it's directed by one of the main uh, protagonists of Disaster Playground. And I'd love to think, I'd love to think that this somehow was influenced by Disaster Playground. I kind of believe that this has been the case as well because it's triggered discussion between all of these leaders in the field that never had a chance to actually really speak to each other. But now they had an opportunity to actually see each other back on the camera. So I think, you you know, for me, yeah, I mean, I will say that this project was, yeah, it was an absolute monster. I think a lot of people never thought I, would go, I was going to do it. A lot of people didn't thought this would happen again. And, you know, here it is. It did happen. You know, we had support from the Art Council UK uh, who gave us, you know, the exceptional award. That's why we could make it happen. Uh, I work with, you know, a great team. We put it together. It was like an absolute nightmare over three months. And then, you know, of course, all the editing, post-editing and, you know, the whole exhibition side of it. So, yeah. Uh, uh, what's so funny is, is during your... Um comment on that project when I, I kind of had, had worked around to ask was it the film was it the thing actually it's it's super viable in the same way with international space orchestra that you'll bring the people together who wouldn't usually talk to each other and, and spend time with actually a, a super viable um result of this project is making stuff happen that otherwise wouldn't for super positive means it's not just i think a lot of people get caught up in that oh yeah my work you know it kind of um it, it makes things happen that wouldn't have otherwise but i think your work actually has such a positive effect it's actually bringing people together to talk about things that are oh, i mean an asteroid hitting the earth relatively important um <laughs> i wanted to talk yeah. uh we've your work has been uh, recognized for a number of awards um the two that i pick out is the tw uh, in 2013 icon magazine nominated you as one of the 50 international designers shaping the future and in 2014 wired magazines inaugural innovation fellow fellowship um 
and that was awarded uh, for works uh, for your work uh, to make a significant impact on the world. Are these awards important to you to get recognised? Are they just a kind of a nice bit that happens as a result of doing it? Is is it a way in which? Because one of the things I wanted to ask is um, how you receive feedback and critique. And now that you leave an as um, educational institution. The, the awards must help to some degree. So maybe that part first, it, it, are the awards important to you? Is it kind of nice to be recognised in that way? Uh, yeah, I mean, awards, that's funny you pick up on that. I mean, I have I have to say that, you know, you might think that I have a lot of them, but actually I, I fail so much. I find myself always in like this like nomination thing and then you're here standing there and then you don't get the award and you're like, Thanking you one more time, you know. The latest one was the Icon, you know, Design Studio of the Year. And I was there with all my team and we were like, yeah, you know, and it's so much work. It's so unbelievable how much work, like my entire life is like, it's just so much work, you know. And to get that recognition is just so important, actually. You wouldn't believe how much it's important to me, actually. Really, it is. And I think people tend to believe that. Because, you know, I achieve and I make these things that, you know, I don't need another award. But actually, it's like it's important, you know, because you're, you're kind of left on your own devices always, you know, to some extent. And so it's this this sort of recognition from the industry has always been really important to me, actually, really. And maybe even to an extent that people think, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter. My sister could be like a common Nelly. It's not a big deal. But it's like, it really upset me. It actually really does upset me when I don't get it, you know. I think and that's it's, so refreshing <laughs> to hear. I think it's always I'm that. It's just so, you know, like, and I think it's coming back to like, you know, I come from the South of France, you know. It's like, you need to remember where I come from. It's not like if I have, you know, I've been golden spoon, you know, or anything like that at all. So it's like having this recognition is just so important to me. It actually is really a big deal and so you know like one of them was a woman of the year achievement award and i really wanted this one i was like fuck it (laughs) there is you know i mean i agree maybe i'm not a woman that is like saving the world in that sense but it's like fuck that you know i go everywhere to tell every single woman that they should become head of space agency because we don't have any head of space agency with a woman apart in germany and you know and i really believe that you know, I'm trying to empower women as best as I can everywhere I go. I really, truly believe that women should be always on the top. I mean, you know, like of the of the industry. But yeah, you know, so I didn't got that one. But okay, I have a Barbie doll, which is quite yes. cool. How, is I like, stupidly haven't written is, that down. You know, which Before is, <laughs> today's interview, Nelly announced that she had a Barbie. First off, I thought she said baby, which I was quite excited about. And then realized that I'd probably have heard. Um and no, you've got your own Barbie doll, um, yeah. which can't happen all too often. And it is amazing. I, I, we need to, we will find a way of sharing these images, but it is a Nelly ben Hain, uh Barbie doll. It is, it's pretty accurate. It's got the right color hair. You were saying that the person that made it uh, noticed that you changed your lipstick color three times. Yeah, that is correct. How, like how, how does that happen? I mean, yes, the awards, that's great. A Barbie doll it's mental. Yeah. So t- t- please do tell us more. How? How? So a year ago, I was doing some consulting at Mattel um, about, you know, the future of toy. And then I also did a talk there. And so and I think, you know, coming back to the positive mindset, I think it really did impact it, 
you know, some of the employees of Mattel, you know, based in LA, so they're at the headquarters. And they still make their doll there. I mean, all the original design, of course, the rest is being done elsewhere. But, you know, all the original design are there. And so this... Um, just a week ago, I was giving a talk in Los Angeles and they, uh, the, well, you know, the creative director and then some of the employees came and they basically offered me the doll as part of the talk. And that was just amazing. Like, and the fact that they, it was a gift from them as well, not just from the brand, but like from them, from the employees of Metal, as in, you know, like, yeah, we can be, you know, we can do this too. Like we, you know, but thank you for even sharing. I, it was just really a nice gesture i mean it was really i mean fantastic so is there just one or are they rolling it out as a where can i there get is, my belly and home uh uh barbie doll from <laughs> your belly where can you get your belly Benayun? uh belly Benayun, you can get her well i don't know where you can get i mean i don't think they will produce them to a big number i think it's only one that they did a one-off but if all of you guys start to go you know, just request it. Just keep searching for it on Amazon. Eventually, they'll make it but happen. But it's a funny thing because, I mean, you know, to some extent, Barbie used to have this really negative image about what women should be. And and the fact, and uh, you know, and I kind of like laugh at myself to some extent because when they offered me the doll, I was sold. That was it. I was like, I am a Barbie. I'm going everywhere. I'm going to be like, I'm Barbie now. And I'm just, but you know what I'm saying? It really, anyway, it's so difficult. You know, you give, you give, you give, and then sometimes it's just, it's really nice to have something back. And I think award and recognition is a part of the industry. And also it's coming back to the way that the creative field is, it's peer-to-peer -peer review too. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I, to whoever is out there that can give some awards, please do think of us. We never have enough award. We are always happy to have one more. Uh, just because, and it depends what it is, but of course, you know, I think it's, uh, but then sometimes awards are not right. For example, you know, we turned down, uh, some awards because I didn't thought that that was, you know, correct or it wasn't representing, you know, what I was doing correctly. So there has been that case too, but yeah. That's interesting. Um, I wanted to talk, I've, uh, we're quickly running out of time. The, uh, teaching that you now do. So you teach at Central St. Martins on the textile futures? Material futures. Material futures, sorry. And at the RCA? Yes. When you get to be on the other side, so you've got a classroom of, of students, what is it that you desperately try and get out of them? What is it that you kind of, what is it that you're trying to communicate and, and kind of... I mean, that's one thing, right? I will never, and it's so much work because of course to fit the schedule of teaching as part of the practice is really challenging, but I will never stop this. I think this is for me, there is no point to do this practice if it's not to share it back to the students. And I love every single of them. And I think it's just, it's an amazing, you know, it's an amazing experience to just be able to share all of this learning that happened through the years, be able to actually format it into a curriculum and make sure that all of these students there can get their voice out. And I think it's never been, you know, education is not about you anymore. And it's such an egocentric, uh, you know, when you do your practice, you have to, to some extent, you know, it's always about your vision, you driving the thing, you, 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 you know, so there is this sort of like really kind of, you know, quite ego, I mean, not quite. I mean, it's a very egocentric, like, feel to some extent. It doesn't make me happy in that sense. But to be able to actually nurture 
their being and actually look at them develop through the year and actually growing their skill set, growing their character, growing their, you know, and actually it's not about them being mini Nelly or anything like that. It's about them becoming themselves. And that's take a lot of, you know, I mean, it takes lot of, you know, I mean, I'm sorry if I speak in a bit of esoterical term, but it has something quite magical like this where, you know, of course, I mean, material futures, we bombard them. So I'm in charge of the first year and the first year curriculum. So, you know, one day my student will be in a laboratory. The other day they will be learning about nanotechnology. The day after they will be coming up with like a performance that will engage members of the public with a specific level of how extraterrestrial material can be digged out. They will be bombarded meeting with like tons of different practitioners people that I will bring in every week to speak to them about you know their practice uh, they will have to do everything from the research to the making to the experiment to the actual delivery to the critique component so it's a very full-on you know curriculum and it's really hard uh, and so of course you know to some extent because it's really hard you start with like 30 students and then you end up with like 20 uh, but you know it's a it all it's like it's a difficult journey and some people are ready for it and some are not but I think it's about, you know, what I was talking about before. It's about being able to go through the flow, experiment with all of it. And some brief might be very hard for you for the first months because, you know, it's really quick, specifically in first year. Second year is more about your own agenda. Uh, and it's, you know, me, I'm kind of like bombarding you with all the flavor of what the creative industry has to give you. Second year is more about you defining your own you know, zone. Uh, but uh, yeah, what I would say is like, it's just, you know, that's something that I think is, yeah, it's probably one of the most incredible things that I'm given the opportunity to do is being able to teach, to format a creative platform for the students uh, and to actually be able to experiment with technique of, you know, how you can be taught, how peer-to-peer -peer review might work, how tut tutorial might function. Uh, and I truly believe into, you know, creativity through conflict as well. So I'm someone who is, you know, I can be told as being quite a tough tutor um, not that I may cry all of my students a lot but I think it's uh, it's important that they get to understand that critique is difficult and it's better to learn about critique and accepting that critique while you are doing your study than afterwards because of course afterwards it's much more difficult to be kind of torn out uh, in the middle of an audience and you're giving a talk and someone's telling you what you do is shit. Uh, but it's like, it's about learning how to deal with that while you're inside this whole uh, kind of nebula of uh, the university. And that's a, a, a place, a creative field that I'm trying to like develop. And again, I believe in free education. So a lot of my work is also about using all of these networks that I have with my practice and bringing it back into the curriculum to make sure that I can get as many scholarships for my students so then they can actually, you know, learn and not because, you know, they have mommy and daddy paying for them, but because they actually deserve to, you know, be in these places. I think it sounds amazing. I'm, I'm contemplating going back into education just to, just to be in that class. Uh, I want to revisit International Space Orchestra ever so briefly. And the, the, the question that's cropped up a few times, are you going into space? Is this part of the project? 
It was part of the project initially, and we actually sent the orchestra in space, right? Like the record went in space, came back, and it's still, there is one copy which is left in the International Space Station for every single astronaut that go in space, they can listen to the International Space Orchestra. So in a way, it went in space, but myself, like I had, I started the training because of course, you know, in the orchestra, you have actual astronaut trainer. So I started to do the training, but it was kind of more of a, on an ad hoc, you know, level. And also I did the PhD to some extent and because I really wanted to be a part of the astronaut corp and I needed to have that, you know, that kind of ticking the box uh, component. But actually now things have changed slightly in the sense that I actually think that I will be more of use as head of a space agency than being, uh, you know, being an astronaut. So that's my new goal is basically getting to a place of senior management inside, um, you know, space agency in order to make sure that to some extent all of these ideas and all of this agenda is also a part of, you know, the way that space and space colonization and the future of space is being uh, shaped. And so to me, it's also saying something quite key about the way that I'm moving uh, I'm not moving away from design at all, but I'm, I'm totally embracing uh, design with a politic agenda, uh, which wasn't the case before so much, you know, or it was the case, but without being so much reclaimed. But now it's very clear that I'm doing everything I'm doing uh, within the political context too. Uh, I'm being, you know, I'm a part of the International Astronautical Federation. I'm pitching all of this idea IF session that I'm sharing where I get, you know, people to speak about space culture with a critical thinking uh, involved in that I'm really actively trying to shape it from the bureaucracy level as much as I am from the public level but I think it's uh, it's been proven really challenging and I think to some extent sometimes I wonder whether or not you know uh, you know bureaucracy can really kill people and it's just really sad actually to realize how things are people that can be really mean when you get to that political level and that's probably why you only have shit MPs is because you know people who are actually having a good you know a good heart and actually really want to move things they just get absolutely torn away and mean 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 people all around them and I think it's uh yeah it can be really challenging like as in if you want to have an easy life or actually be happy you know, sometimes you kind of want to think about, you know, I have such a limited amount of time uh, that sometimes I think, is it a good investment of, of my energy to actually like purge that political agenda? Uh, but I think, you know, I still think I can give it a go for the next five, 10 years uh, before I can, you know. Run for president. Yeah, of correct. Let's make it happen. Uh, <laughs> my final question uh, every time for these interviews is when you look back at your career from, um, from putting your aunt's, uh, arm in the bucket of, uh, of plasticast of uh, plaster of plaster uh, right up to kind of disaster playground is there anything that you'd have done differently what would I have done differently uh, I don't think I would do it differently to be honest, I think I've done it in every single different way anyway. So I think, you know, if you take every single project, it's always been so chaotic. But, you know, I was thinking about it recently and I was thinking, well, 
you know, if I didn't do it this way, if I didn't do it in such a chaotic, risky, you know, at some point I had minus 14,000 pounds in the bank. It was just pretty chaotic. All my stuff was going to take away. I nearly got sued many times. Uh, you know, I lost all of my uh, partners. I've been, you know, I've been terribly, terrible as a collaborator for a long time because I couldn't handle stress. Uh, and then I discovered sports, which is now, you know, a big thing in my life, like just running every single day five kilometers to you know kind of be able to just organize all of this idea but in a way if I didn't screw myself into it if I didn't fuck a bit time with a lot of collaborators and it's been really painful really really painful psychologically you know mentally physically in every single way it's not an easy job right but I think if I didn't do it this way I would never be able to be there standing you know, turning 31 this year, being able to actually be able to fully embrace now every single project and be happy. So to some extent, all of this really, really fucked up work done in a very chaotic way uh, with production experiment at every single stages. Lucky I had that. So then now I can actually be in a rock concert with the International Space Orchestra at the Fillmore Theater, being able to look at them and have a massive, huge smile in my face and being able to be so happy and that is only possible because you know I had all of the drama before so I think drama has to be a part of the creative process it cannot be any other way I don't know I mean you know, I don't think it can be, and it's never easy, and it will never be easy even moving forward. But at least I can be on the top of things, you know. I can kind of, like, I know, I think I have experimented with every single terrible situation, everything from, like, car crash to everything. I have experimented everything to that point I think in a production. So I don't know uh, if anything can be keep going that I mean I'm sure that there will be more I'm sure 100% because you know we are working on a new project which is an absolute monster right like we are going to go 11 kilometers at sea and us you know on board of a viking ship crossing the world for six months and looking at you know future outer space colonization absolutely mental uh, project with submersible and all of that and it's a monster it's an absolute monster not only to fundraise but also to put together but and I know things will go terribly wrong but I'm able to just take it in a way that you know I can still enjoy life as part of it and I think it's credit to you because I think when you talk about the the low ends of of your career today in life today it's it's it, they're still said with the positive spin with the looking at the kind of the bright side of things and i think that's absolute credit to you nelly thank you so much for your time today it's been absolutely fantastic thank you so much and remember to all of you life is too short so do everything you can when you can here you go thank you A big thanks for listening to this episode of Lecture in Progress. The music and sound for this podcast was produced by the wonderful Zelig Sound. Zelig produced some of the best original music and sound design for commercials, TV and films. Check them out at zeligsound.com. Do check out the rest of the series on the website at lectureinprogress.com. Do follow us on Twitter at lectureinprog for updates. And please do support the Kickstarter. Thanks for listening. Mm.